hey, it's Laura. Welcome to another episode, another week. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode with Jason Isbell, Jan Rader, and Wes Hurt from South by Southwest. It's the addiction panel that I moderated. If you haven't checked it out yet, definitely do. It's fun and funny and helpful and warm. That's at least the feedback that we have got from it. You can also watch it. You can watch the whole thing on our YouTube channel. Yes, we have a YouTube channel. All our episodes are there as audio, but this happens to be there as a video of the session. So go check it out. It also happens to be a perfect companion lead-in to today's conversation with Anna Marie Cox. So Anna spent the better part of two decades as a political columnist and culture critic. She started the political blog Wonquette in 2004 and worked at outlets like the New York Times, Time Magazine, GQ, Air America, and The Guardian. So after living a professional persona for a long time and living kind of behind that, Anna started to talk about more personal parts of her life publicly, like being bipolar and then struggling with alcohol addiction. She moved away from politics, and we talk about why, as well as what getting sober was like for her, but not just from alcohol. We talk about breaking the addiction to productivity, busyness, approval, and codependency. Anna has some really poignant things to share about mother-daughter relationships and forgiveness and just real recovery talk. She was amazing to talk to as a woman in long-term recovery and just very real and warm and funny and so smart. One of her recent projects is a column that's great called Sober Questioning. It's on the cut and she answers readers questions every other week about drinking and not drinking. Check that out. So we talked for almost a half, an hour and a half, 90 minutes, and there's so much to this episode. You can hear the complete unedited version if you want to become a paid subscriber, and I'll tell you more about that at the end of the show. Also, a reminder that every episode we create has a companion Spotify playlist with music inspired by the guests and the topics, Michael and I trade off creating those each week, depending on who's feeling it. And so now we have almost 50 playlists out there and they are searchable on Spotify. So if you search there, you will obviously find the show, but you'll also find our playlists. So check those out. They're a lot of fun. We love making them. All right. Here's Anna Marie Cox. I'm very happy to have you here. You've been in the public eye for a long time. You've been sober for 10, 11 years? I had 11 years on March 23rd. Uh, congratulations. Okay. Thanks. So, and you've been in the public eye for a lot longer than that. We all have to grow up and get sober in public, even if we're not public figures, because we are surrounded by people. 
who are invested in a certain image of who we are. And even if it's not a public figure like you, we have to grow and evolve. And uh, so I want to talk about that. Can you talk about what it was like getting into recovery and recovering both personally and professionally kind of in public? Sure. I have like two different ways to go with this. One of them is that my perception of being a public figure, I think this is true for everyone, unless you're like a genuine A1 celebrity, is that I'm a lot more public than I really am, right? I mean, this is a lesson Mm -hmm. that you learned in recovery is that you're not nearly as important as you think you are Mm -hmm. and not nearly as many people notice. um, Everything you're doing. Everything you're doing. I mean, that said... um, you know, I disappeared uh, kind of quickly when I bottomed out um, because my my bottom was a pretty enthusiastic suicide attempt um, that put me in an emergency room, an ICU, and a psych ward. And then I didn't really have much time between that and going to treatment. And I was in treatment for four months. Got it. So where they took away the phone, obviously, mm-hmm. right? So like I went from like tweeting constantly and being all over social media to suddenly like disappearing. And some people asked questions, right? Not nearly as many people, of course, as I maybe wanted to. Right. <laughs> Very honest statement. Yes. Um, but also discovering, this is taking your question in a different direction, I guess, but Fine. discovering I was more anonymous than I thought I was, was actually great. It was. Um, Yeah. Especially since it turns out, you know, my particular form of internet famous is pretty specific Mm -hmm. to people that follow politics. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. So, and you know what? Most people don't. (laughs) Isn't that funny? The world you're in, you think is the world. Right. So, you know, I went to treatment and I was just a just another person there and it was actually a real relief. It was a, a weird and destabilizing thing too because uh in the um lounge of the treatment center that I was in there was a a stack of magazines and I was in a couple of them. <laughs> That's and I remember weird. like as an author, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember going and every once in a while like looking at them being like that's me. That's my old life. <laughs> there it is. Um, but I kind of loved it because, you know, I think like any of us that that are insecure, which is almost everyone in um, recovery, I spent my life thinking that I was only worth my achievements. Mm-hmm. And one of the frustrations I had and something that kept me you know, drinking and using for a long time was my belief that I could apply my big brain and my talents to my addiction. And that if I could just find a way, if I could just like put my brain on it and just like think of a solution and come up with a plan, that would be the way that I would solve my life. I don't even think, I mean, I didn't really think about it in terms of getting sober. I thought of it in terms of fixing my life. That's right. Me too. Yeah. Um, when drinking was a part of what I wanted to fix, but I didn't occur to me that that was the first thing that I should fix. <laughs> so, also me too. Yeah. So, 
you know, I spent this all my life, all of my kind of conscious life pursuing outside validation. And that outside validation came and it made me think that I, if I just tried hard enough, I could fix things. If I just tried hard enough. And of course, like alcoholism doesn't work that way. And so kind of being stripped of all of my outside validation or all the outside validation I was used to, which was like married to another successful journalist, um, lived in a nice house. I had the two cars and my byline and like all of that. I lost all of that. And I was only worth, well, I was worth what everyone else was worth, right? Which is, depends on how you look at it, but yeah. <laughs> it can be some days that feels like a lot. Sometimes that feels like a little, but it's the same. Yeah. Um, and what people, what people saw in me was what I did that day, right? right. Who I was that day. And you're talking about in treatment. In treatment, and also I did sober living. So I had a real humbling year. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I remember I actually, I thought it was kind of an interesting life hack at the time. Like I always, so we had chores in treatment and in the sober house, but I always signed up for the gross chores, like taking out the garbage and cleaning up after lunch and stuff. Mm -hmm. Because first of all, it was, it was usually those things actually didn't take that long. Like it was just, it was just gross. So people didn't want to do it, but it actually didn't take that long. And the other thing is that there is this weird kind of respect you got, right? Like if you were always doing the shit work. Yep. Um, (laughs) But it was earned respect, right? It was like something that I did. It wasn't valid and it wasn't like outside validation. It was like, I knew that I did a thing that needed to be done for other people to make our little household work. Um, and that's my value, right? Like in addition to just being a human that has value, but I guess that's actually not about value. That's about self-respect. That's like self-respect from the inside. Classic dignity. Yeah. It's just dignity. And, um, you know, I didn't want to go to sober living, but I knew I would die if I didn't. Mm. (laughs) That was a lot of my decision making in early sobriety was like, I don't want to do this, but I also feel like it's not time for me to die. So... I'll do it. I I tell this to a lot of newcomers, which is that willingness doesn't have to be happy. Like you don't have to be like jazzed to do the stuff you're supposed to do. Like I stomped my feet and I pouted like all the way into that sober house um, and kept stomping my feet and pouting, but just did what I was supposed to do. Right. Like I hated that I had a curfew and I remember the house house um, manager being like, well, where are you going to (laughs) go? Right. And I'm like, I'm 34 years old. It's just the like, principle, right? Right. It's the principle of the thing. Like I'm, you know, I'm 38 years old. I'm 38 years old. And I also like had a roommate roommate, you know, because it's a sober house. So we're doubled up in beds. And I'm like, I'm 38 years old. And I have like a person sleeping five feet away from me yeah. after living in like a nice house and like fancy, fancy. It was great, though. Um, what was great it made about me really- it? Worker among worker, friend among friends. Like I was yeah. just another person in that sober house. Yeah. And what people thought about me was how I showed up every day. And that's the key to building self-respect. And self-respect is kind of, you know, it grows in tandem with a sense of worth. I think it's probably a little different. But I remember yeah. the sponsor I had at a treatment, I had, a, you know, whatever, I was struggling 
the mental health stuff was much harder to get my head around than the addiction for me. Yep. Um, and I was really struggling and I was kind of depressed. And she asked me if I'd done my chore that day. And I was like, yeah, I think so. And she said, and how did you do it? What did you do? And I think it was taking the garbage out. And I was like, yeah, I took the garbage out. And she's like, and did you make sure that it didn't drip along the way? Did you put in a new liner after you got it? Did you wipe out the bottom if there's like gross juice stuff in there, like gross garbage juice? And I'm kind of like, I don't, why is that important? Mm -hmm. And she said, it's important for you. Like you're not doing that for the other people in the house. Like you're doing it to know that you did something to the best of your ability. And that's how brick by brick, action by action, we build up who we are. We build up who we are from the inside. Um, and I hope this is making sense in terms of like, it's not outside validation. It's like totally knowing I sense. did the work. Absolutely. Right? No, it totally makes sense. And I love what you said about willingness doesn't mean being happy about it. What exactly did you say? Don't judge me jazz. You don't have to be like, don't be jazz. like I'm going to be yeah. sober. <laughs> I'm going to do, I'm going to do my fourth step. Like... You know, I'm going to take this recommendation. Yeah. You just have to do it. And then what I discovered is that it takes a lot more energy to be sulky about something than it does to just do it. Mm -hmm. So, you yeah. know. Yeah. I always well thought of the, the line, repetition is the way of teaching the unwilling, the unwanted. I thought about <laughs> that a lot in early recovery because I hated going to meetings. I hated almost everything about it. I didn't want to be sober. I wanted to just... I just didn't want to die. I didn't want my life to keep exploding, but I didn't want to be sober. And so yeah. I'm really glad you made that point. And then I'm going to get to the public part, which is that, so I was very lucky to have like nine months or so, eight, yeah, a month or so of being outside of Washington, mm -hmm. having ha had, I thought I blew up my career. Did you literally lose your job or did you? Yeah, because I, I, I OD'd on assignment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that would do it. Yeah. They were very nice about it, but. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but weren't going to take me back. <laughs> they like didn't make a big, what they did is they didn't like, it just, they just kept me on the masthead for a little while and then, you know. Faded like, you out. Parted, mm -hmm. Yeah. But I thought I had lost my career and I actually was not unhappy about that in a way, like I was ready to start over. So I thought I'd get a job in a coffee shop and write a novel or something. And then I actually got a couple of job offers, which are a whole nother miracle of the pr program or just, yeah. that's just like it, I job out, two job offers came to me. And I went to my sponsor at the time and I'm like, you want me to turn this down, right? Because I well, that's bad for me. Like that was my using, you know, uh, context and that's a high pressure and that's a lot of ego. And he shocked me by saying, who's paying, like, she's like, who's paying your rent right now? And I was like, well, I'm getting some help from my dad. And she said, do you, does your dad, is that something you can be in? It can be an ongoing thing. And I was like, well, probably not for that long. I mean, my dad's very generous and of course would do whatever I, you know, he's a dad. Yeah. And she said, 
part of being sober is taking responsibility for yourself and you have an opportunity to take responsibility for yourself. And there's a way to stay sober doing this and it's going to be a challenge. But I don't, and maybe this would be a different answer for a different person. Right. But it's been eight months <laughs> and why don't you stand on your own two feet and take the challenge? And so I did, and I, there was no like grand entrance. Again, no. I'm not as important as people, as I think I am. I'm not as important as I think I am. And the other thing is that some people didn't notice I was gone. I think to get around to the to the actual part of like what it, what it does, what it has meant, is that people are, I think, pretty, feel more safe judging someone mm -hmm. in the public eye. It's an interesting way to put it, feel more safe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In some ways, they feel more safe, I think, criticizing the way that I do my sobriety. So other sober people. Oh, yeah. There's that whole thing. Um, feel really comfortable telling me that I'm doing my sobriety wrong. When did you make a statement about what you, where you'd been and that you were in recovery or just that you were in recovery, not where you'd been? That's, I don't know if there was like a moment. Yeah. I think I was actually pr pretty, like I might've probably been like a year sober before I mentioned it in public. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that I kept it a secret, but I do take pretty seriously like, obviously, I think it's okay to talk about your recovery. And I, you know, I even identify specifically in 12-step recovery, and I'm happy to talk about the steps and the rooms mm -hmm. and all that. Mm -hmm. um, but I do feel, you know, you don't advertise your specific program and um, – or you try not to. And then also I'm wary of the, I'm sober. Hey, everybody, look. When you're like in your first year. Ask me anything. <laughs> yeah. Ask it me is anything. interesting. And I'll, I mean, I did that in my personal life to some degree because I was so happy to be sober, but I yeah. wanted not to do that. And I didn't want to be a representative. Mm -hmm. And I also didn't want the entire world to know if, like, if I relapsed, which is sometimes part of people's story. Yeah. Like, I didn't want that to be like a thing that people could judge other people with. When did you yeah. start to sort of incorporate it into your work? Like when was, is the oh, cut yeah, series that. the first sobriety focused work? That took a lot longer. Yeah. Um, yeah, that took a lot longer. Like I started talking about my faith more specifically before I started talking about my recovery, mm -hmm. although they're pretty inseparable. Um, mm -hmm. I think I talked about my recovery in public for a long time before I wrote anything about it. I th think the first thing that I wrote that really centered it, like I might have mentioned it before. Yeah. It was actually a review of Hunter Biden's memoir that I wrote for The Atlantic. Ah. Uh, or an yeah. essay. It wasn't really a review. It was like kind of a response. Mm -hmm. In which actually I talked about the um, humility of being a known person 
in a program that is based on anonymity. Yeah. And the relief that I found in not being the person that everybody knew and in, you know, in reveling in, in not having to live up to who that was. Yeah. And having people find value in me and what I did outside of what I could do for them in a professional capacity. So I don't talk very much about being a writer. I try to use the most general terms possible to describe what I'm doing. I don't have editors. I have bosses, right? I don't have assignments. I have contracts. Mm -hmm. Why do you do that? Because I don't want people to be distracted by stuff that's a little bit out of the ordinary. Yeah. And I just want to be... I just want to be who I am and who I am. I just want to be another drunk because my problems are everybody's problems. Like I don't mm-hmm. have special problems just because I'm a writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so early on in recovery, probably th- three, four years, maybe, um, I was at a meeting in St. Paul, really big meeting that a lot of um, sober houses send kids to. So there's tons of like 20 something dudes in that meeting. Yeah. And I, and it's a huge meeting. It's like a hundred and something people, but then we break out and I was in a small group and I was having some kind of, I don't even remember like what the issue was, but I was having like shit time at work. And I talked about it in terms of boss assignment, you know, or contract. And, uh, you know, it's not important like what my my editor and I were arguing about, right? What's important is that I was angry and resentful and I felt judged. And, you know, those are pretty universal feelings for someone who's an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I was really upset. Like, I think I was at the end of my rope. I remember, I do kind of remember it was actually before I parted ways with this particular organization because I did feel like I was, you know, at my wits end and dealing with people there. And I think I said something about that at the meeting and how it was scary because I kind of felt like it would be better for me to move on, but I didn't know what I would do next and yeah. et cetera. And this kid came up to me after the meeting and said, you know, I just got hired at this pizza place and they're still hiring if you want the info. Oh, and I heart. cried. Yeah. <laughs> And then it was such a gift. Totally. You know, like I'm getting serious thinking about it now. Yeah. Um, And he probably didn't have like a month, you know. Yeah. Oh, my God. What a a moment, man. I love that. My heart just went. (laughs) And I never saw the kid again. Who knows? Like I said, it was a huge meeting. Um, I hope someday he hears me tell this story. That would be really beautiful for me. Like mm-hmm. if he remembers like the girl who he offered a pizza job to. Yep. And you know what? It felt good on a lot of levels. It felt good on the level of like, I'm not alone. Yep. Like the world is out there for me. Yeah. Um, And just to be heard. Yep. You know, that's what that person heard. That's what that felt like. Is it they weren't distracted by anything? 
except well, like the the pain that I was in. Yeah, you know, and that he frustration felt like, that I felt. and that he had something to offer. You know, like yeah. that probably meant a lot to him. I hope so. Yeah, it meant, it's, it meant a ton to me. Hi, I'm Michael. I'm the executive producer of Tell Me Something True and co-created the show with Laura. You know, we have one goal here. Put something into the world that helps all of us figure out how we can have a better week. We think the best way to do that is to keep the pod ad-free so all of the work goes toward making something that's useful for you instead of hustling to keep advertisers happy. And this is where you come in. TMSD Plus is the membership program that helps to keep this show going. And whether it's through a monthly membership or a one-time contribution, TMST Plus members are super important because they help to pay for the pod's production and distribution costs. When you're a member, you get to join Laura for member-only events, send in questions for the AMAs, and you get access to the complete unedited interviews. It's pretty sweet, makes a difference, and you can make it happen with a one-time gift or for as little as five or ten bucks a month. If your situation is such that becoming a member doesn't work, it's all good. We hope you enjoy the show, maybe share it with a friend or two, and we hope you check out the playlist we put together every week on Spotify. Just search the playlists for Tell Me Something True. It's free, and look, we're just thrilled that you're here. If you can become a member, you can find the link in the show description. Head over to tmstpod.com. It takes less than two minutes. Thanks a lot. So it sounds like professionally you navigated based on your own tuition. There wasn't a lot of pushback in any, at any one point. Um, has there ever been a time where you've felt implicated or othered because of your recovery professionally? My challenge when it comes to my recovery in my career is to keep believing that my recovery comes first and to mm. – believe that the universe has my back as long as I stay sober. And actually, even if I didn't stay sober, the universe has my back. But um, to not – to find that middle ground where I can take pride in doing a good job but not find my value there. Oh, man. I hear that. And that's universal, right? Like that's not someone in the public eye or not in the public eye. That's – A lot of people. It's a lot of people, and especially for those of us that grow up in a context where we feel empty on the inside and we do get affirmation and endorsement and goodies from yep. performing. Yep. And like I was going to say, like, so I'm between full-time gigs right now, and I think this is what my higher power wants for me. Mm-hmm. It's one of the most, I mean, I had a bad year in general, like, you know, I got divorced and I lost my full-time gig and I moved and, you know, That's money became an issue. Um, and having to trust that I can just do my best and I'll be okay 
And maybe that okay doesn't look exactly like what I think okay should look like. Maybe that okayness doesn't look like having another job that's the exact same kind of job. You know, and also maybe being busy isn't the same as working and isn't the same as doing your best. Oh, yeah. God. (laughs) Because like, I just, I mean, I have stuff to be doing right now, but it's not as much as I used to have. And Mm -hmm. I have days where I've done kind of all I really need to do and there's, I could do more. You know what I'm talking about. Like, you can always work on your book. Like, you can always work on your book, but like, do you really want to work on your, how long, how much is it good to work on your book? (laughs) Yep. This is, that's been for me a a very, very big part of recovery. And so like, if I actually shared about this in a meeting today, which is the idea that sometimes the hardest and scariest for thing for me to do is, is nothing. Amen. And I'm going to like, I'm going to cry like Mm -hmm. to like sit with being myself and also just to know that I've done the best that I could with what I have right now. Yeah. And to have that be enough. And have not, there's not, I can't wring a job out of the universe, you know, like I can't wring self-worth out of the universe. Mm. Yeah, I it, I just feel you. And it's, also that there's there is stuff out there. Also, like if, I mean, also an alcoholic, I discount everything that I have. Right, like it's not enough. Like that one freelance gig. Yeah, not enough. Doesn't yeah. really. So yeah. anyway, like yeah. But it's <sighs> I I I just I God I feel you. Every all the things you're saying about I'm you know it's been a a different but similar path for me in, at various points and the, the busyness. It, just having finished a book, like I said, I had this moment of, it took a minute to realize I actually turned it in and like let the adrenaline slow down. And then to not immediately fill that vacuum up with everything else. It's so innate. And to be on to myself that like, yeah, you really just, it's hard for you to sit. <laughs> it's really hard for you to just be. And that that healing is part of what all of what I need to be doing. Oh, And that, and trusting not just that the universe has my back, but that I will know what to do when it comes time to do it. Yes you will know the next right thing. I will know the next right thing. And that if I'm confused right now, then the best, like one of the things I love about the program, by the way, one of the best sayings is when in doubt, do nothing. Mm. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'm in doubt all the time right now. <laughs> no, I'm like, what if you're in doubt all the time? <laughs> and, but I think that is the right, the next right thing is because, because when you know the next right thing, you know it, you're not you in do. doubt. That's right. You're like, oh, this is what I need to be doing. Yeah. So if you don't have that pull, if you, because right now, like the thing about being sober is that I have clarity. I have a spiritual life. I have a good um, support network. I'm not making foolish decisions, right? Like I'm not, when I'm left to my own devices and my good intuition, 
I do a pretty good job. And also to trust that like, you know, I just went through this really horrible year and I'm, I don't, you know, like I'm eating and drinking, not drinking, but like I'm, <laughs> I'm eating again, I'm sleeping again. You know, I, I have good, I have lots of good days and mm. I'm not crying all the time, <laughs> crying sometimes, but, um, and so I want it to be over now. I want yeah. the hard time to be over now. Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. And, <laughs> and I don't get to decide when that is. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was like really like more than a year of really hard, hard times. Oh, I'm sure. If, you're, if you and, get divorced, it's been hard for a, a lot longer than a year. Everybody who gets sober has to deal with the people around them either – holding on to what happened, who they were. And surprisingly, uh, a lot of people run into a lot of feelings of people not wanting them to actually change or being being um, confronted by their change, especially partnerships. Um, but it can happen in familial relationships and friends where you really – want to move on. You really want to change. And that causes this, and you do change. We just do. And that causes this ripple effect in our groups, our social, you know, groups and our, in our attachments. What was the process of recovery like with the people close to you without, you know, getting, getting into it as much well, as you Well, I was very fortunate that my first marriage ended as I was getting sober. I mean, I say that a little bit facetiously, obviously, but it was probably, it was definitely for the best. Yeah. Um, and then I would say that one of the benefits of getting sober is finding out who my real friends were. Mm -hmm. And I was able to think about it that way most of the time. And it had less to do with like people like out and out objecting to the new way that I was. And more to do with people that seem to value me in my new place. Mm. Um, my family was amazing. Uh, my dad especially. Um, my mom's also or was also an alcoholic who died when I was about a year sober. She never, mm. never got sober. Mm. And actually, if there was one person – that had trouble with me getting sober. It was my mom. Yeah. Wow. Um, we drank together a lot. That was when we got along the best. Yep. I know that. And I actually had this, Oh God, this is super painful. When I needed to scrape up the money to stay in treatment for another few months. And it didn't, it, it, there was a point where I didn't know how I was going to do that. Um, I asked her and her husband for money to stay in treatment. And she wrote me back that she said I, she didn't think I needed it. Oof. That's, yeah. there's so much in there. <laughs> so yeah. much in there. And, you know, I mean, that definitely is a relationship where we were we only knew how to be sick together. Yeah. Um, 
And that's a relationship I still work on. I'm sure. And again, I say this with some dark humor, but you know, we're both sober now. <laughs> you um, are. But for the most part, like my family has been amazing. My dad, my aunts and uncles. Um, I'm an only child, so I don't have any siblings, but, um, and then my good friends, like my best friend, I know had a lot of anger about the way that I was treating myself before I got oh. sober. Hated seeing you hurt yourself. Yeah. Oh God. Like I was, you know, again, this sort of metaphor of like, how would you treat how what would you think of someone else treating somebody like that? Yeah. And I was treating the person she loved like shit. Mm. Um, and I think that that took a little while for me to accept that she was angry, number one. I just sort of just wanted her to be happy that I was sober. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And well, yeah, we don't like any, we don't like anger being directed at us because it's just swirls into shame, but, but you knew it was about yeah, that. And it, it wasn't, I don't, I've never actually made a formal amendment to her about it. I've made sort of an informal, like, I'm sorry I put you through that. Mm -hmm. um, and it went away. I mean, like it dissipated because I, I started taking care of myself. Right. You know, and I do think like I've been thinking the last column I had was sort of about a And one thing I want to, I always want to remind people is some of them are going to be super, super hard and ugly and scary, but kind of most of the time people are just happy you're sober. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Seriously. That's been my experience too. Like, and also there are all these times that I think I, I hurt somebody, but really I just embarrassed myself which is different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there's not really an amend. There's just like acknowledgement, acknowledgement. And, uh, and also that's the right sizing that sort of, be, I mean, I feel like that's been the theme here is like, sometimes I think the mistakes I made are a lot, I mean, they still are bad. Like I don't, you should not minimize your behavior, but there's a difference between shame and actual hurt. Yes. And in fact, it's really important to distinguish between those two things because if you carry shame into an apology, not going to do a lot of good. Yep. So and it's so hard for, it's so hard to, to understand that. That's yeah. why, the, that's why amends comes after a bunch of other stuff. And why like, I'm always advise people when in doubt, don't do it. Mm -hmm. Like if you're still carrying a lot of shame and guilt, you know, the amend that you do is to work on yourself and stay sober until you're ready to do this next step. Yeah. But I would never push anybody into doing, into making, into, to confronting someone about a thing that they still felt shame about. Yeah. Agree. You had a great line in that column. Um, yes, it's something I did, but it's not who I am. It was really, it was a real gift to like that way of thinking about it. I came from a therapist and I bet you know this feeling. It's when you remember a thing that you did or were reminded of it for some reason. And this, it's, I feel like it's almost this full body shiver. Oh yeah, it is. Usually shame. I do shiver. <laughs> yeah. And it just <laughs> runs down my back and it's this incredibly like, I feel a flush, mm -hmm. you know, a, 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 like a 
like embarrassed, like a flush of embarrassment, in my blood. And the way that I have to deal with that now is that, yes, that happened. I have to, you have to acknowledge it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then deep breath and I'm a different person now. And I am, I am by staying sober already working on repairing that damage. That's right. And that's all I can do at this moment. Yep. And it's enough. And it's enough for now. It has to be enough. It has to um, be. Yes. It sucks. But it's that acknowledgement that's really important too. Because that's when we're when we're in our using, I think we just run away from the acknowledgement that we did that. You know? Or we or we like wallow in it. Right. Which is also not useful. <laughs> no. Yeah, I loved it because I have a, a thing that I have said to myself is I don't live there anymore. It's good. But it was missing that first part, which was sort of always implied in my mind, but it's very helpful to say, yes, I did that and I don't live there anymore. What always would come when I would let myself go through that cycle, the acknowledgement and the, and the, I don't live there anymore is it would, I would be so grateful. It would, I would, it would allow me to feel grateful for the fact that I don't live there anymore. Like it pulled, it alchemized the shame for me. Yeah. So and it comes back. I mean, shame is a thing that we continue to work on. I think mm-hmm. women, especially, you know, have a lot of shame around our use and the behavior in our use because some of the behavior of women in using, although it's the same as men, mm-hmm. carries different cultural weight. Yes, it, absolutely. And, especially mothers. Yeah. And so the shame can be pretty intense. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just like any other painful emotion. It's just like I would the you know the the one that comes to mind is grief because that's what I'm working through right now, mm-hmm. um, which is that you know you don't get done <laughs> at a certain date, no, <laughs> and you may never get done really. Like that flush of shame. My hope for myself is that they're fewer and far between. Yeah, but aren't they? I mean, yeah, they are. But like. It's, I can't expect to like be, be done, done. No. You know, I mean, maybe at some point with some of the stuff I will be, yay. but I don't know. I have to, I think I have to be ready for like, I'm going to work on this until I'm not working on it. Yes. And I don't get to pick that moment. No, you don't agree with that. I, I, I suppose I was so buried in shame. I mean, I just, I didn't think that anyone live I didn't I couldn't imagine living without it and then that was from mm-hmm. way before I started drinking I was just yeah. always embarrassed and ashamed and I don't feel like that anymore I have anxiety I have regret I have fear I have all those things and I feel shame occasionally but it's not I'm not swimming in it and I know how, I now have tools too to recover. Like we know, we know, we know what to do with it, and so we can we can move through it quicker. I think that's the big thing. It's like you still go through all the shit, but it hits you differently. You know what to do. Yeah, and I don't hate myself anymore. Yes, <laughs> like that's how I said that in the column. That. Like, 
like I fuck up all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Like I am still selfish and insecure and anxious and I can be tone deaf about other people's needs and, you know, all of the things that humans do Mm -hmm. Uh, and make some similar mistakes, not the same because I'm not using and they're not quite so dramatic, but I, I can still like make somebody else else's life a little dif- more difficult because of my behavior or hurt someone mm-hmm. even unintentionally because of my behavior. Mm-hmm. But I don't hate myself for it. <laughs> That's right. just like a fucking miracle. Right. Like, you don't think that you're as my my therapist says categorically wrong. Yeah, like it's bad. I did a bad thing. Yeah. I did that. I did it, do it this happens. thing that hurts someone else. It happened. Um, but it's not the same as like who I am. That's right. And conversely, oh my God, dealing with other people that way too is a huge deal, right? Like being able to know that someone else isn't, and I do in my bones, there are are very few bad people in the world. Mm. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's might be controversial. (laughs) No, I think that's basically true. I think there are a lot of Sick people, sick people, hurt broken people, people broken hurt people, people, all of that, and they do awful, awful things. Mm-hmm. But truly, psychopathic but, people, yeah, yeah, it's not, it's yeah. not an epidemic. <laughs> you know, like it's there. There are people that do terrible, terrible things. Most of them, I do not cross paths with. That's right. you know, yeah. Yes. And so in my life, most of the people that I deal with, I mean, there's this the amazing thing about compassion, the compassion that I grow in recovery is that it has to run both ways. Mm-hmm. I can't have just compassion for someone else and no compassion for myself. And I can't have just compassion for me and no compassion for other people. Mm-hmm. Like it, you feed one side and the other side benefits too. Like the more compassion I have for me, the more compassion I can have for others, more compassion I have for others, more compassion I can have for me. You know, right. and all of that makes life easier. It does. Which one do you struggle with more? Oh, compassion for myself, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same. Oh, yeah. Um, like I said, I have to turn – I when I'm in a – when I'm in the worst place – and I still get into some pretty dark places, especially, like I said, this been a, been a real, real pandemic. <laughs> Um, what, what would I think, what would I want for someone else? Yeah. Someone that you love easily, unconditionally. I think about my mom a lot. You do. What would I want for her? What a gift. That she couldn't do for herself. Yeah. Wow. There's I'm some writing in there, I would imagine. Yeah, I might be working on something. <laughs> oh, okay. Good. <laughs> it might be. Might be working on something about that. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, definitely though, like it's, I wanted her to be able to take, to know that she was okay Mm -hmm. and that she was loved. Mm. And I, in part, because I didn't want to be the one to prove it to her because that's kind of what our relationship looked like sometimes is that she didn't believe that she was loved unless I loved her. Yeah. And what a burden. What an impossible task for a child. Mm -hmm. Yes. Very much. Mm-hmm. And it was exhausting, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and what a gift it would have been for both of us if she had known that she was just loved. 
Absolutely. Well, like you said, you get to still have that relationship with her. Still working on it. Still working on it. All right. Thank you so much for being with us today. If you want more TMST, head on over to tmstpod.com and become a member. Members get access to the full uncut versions of these conversations, previews of upcoming guests, invites to join me for members-only events, and access to our members-only community where I hang out a lot. We decided from the beginning to make this an independent project. We don't have sponsors and we don't run ads. This means that we can make the show all about you and not what our sponsors or advertisers want. But it also means we're 100% reliant on your support. So my request and my invitation is simple. Support the show by becoming a member or you can simply make a one-time donation of as little as $5. I cannot stress this enough. You can make a huge difference for as little as $5. Please head over to tmstpod.com right now. Tell Me Something True is engineered and mixed by Paul Chufo. Michael Elsesser and I dreamed up this show, and we're looking forward to joining you online and next time on Tell Me Something True.